Welcome to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that has taken the innocence of the imagination of a child and turned it into a terrifying hellscape. He's joining me today to talk about the first book of his six-book series entitled Bad Blood, the first book of the Aphotic. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Tobin Elliott. Tobin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on this 18th day of December 2023. I came across your six-book ephotic series on Bookstagram and was captivated by the bizarre cover of your first work, Bad Blood, the first book of the ephotic. I was immediately drawn in by the first scene of the book, which began as an unfortunate but cute domestic scene, which quickly turned violent and disturbing, so I'm eager to delve into the details of this story as well as the trajectory of the series. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) Well, so the book is about a young woman named Talia and her sister Alex who are being raised by their single mother, Diane. Mm Mm-hmm. Talia harbors resentment towards her sister, Alex, blaming her for their father's departure from the family. And one day, the young woman who babysits Talia and Alex gifts Talia a Dr. Seuss book. However, this book turns out to be much more than a children's story. It teaches her to harness very powerful forces. And that's where the story begins. So the book is purported to be Dr. Seuss's book, Oh, the things you can think. Could you share a little bit about the actual book? And if you can do it without revealing any spoilers, explain why you chose to utilize it for the story. So, I mean, and I think you find it very quickly. It's really not a Dr. Seuss book. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, the book, I'm just trying to think here, but I think the book pretty much makes an appearance in every of the six books in the series. So when I say the book, I'm talking about this book with a capital B. So and you're not talking about the things we think. Not okay. yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I will get to the, oh, the things we can think. So the book itself, the evil book, and you find this as you go through the series, especially in book two and in book six that the book 
the evil book has its own way of kind of introducing itself to its intended victim target, however you want to call them. Mm. So with Talia being quite young, all the things you can think is almost a bit of an inside joke. There really is a Dr. Seuss book called All the Things You Can Think, and it did come out. I looked it up. I was curious. <laughs> it did come out in August of 75, so just in time. And I kind of went with that one because the book, as you know, having read it, does influence the thinks that Talia thinks. <laughs> so it was a, a bit of a kind of an in-joke in for me and an in-joke for the book, the evil book itself. Plus, if you've ever seen, I don't know if you saw the cover of Oh, The Things You Can Think, but no. it's got a whole bunch of weird creatures, kind of <laughs> Dr. Seuss-type creatures walking in this big circle on the cover. Uh -huh. And I mean, you know, Seuss is cool, but he's got some creepy characters too. So... It just, you know, going through and kind of going, what book do I want this thing to disguise itself as? That was the one. It just seemed the right choice. It takes a completely different tack in the next book. I won't say what. And then you find a third way that it tries to infiltrate in the very last book, too. Because the book is, quite frankly, sentient. It's alive. So it mm. talks to you. Yeah, I think Dr. Seuss may have been a bit of a psychonaut, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe, maybe uh, dabbling a little bit in the, the shrooms or the, yeah, uh, he, uh, the ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah, I won't speculate. <laughs> <laughs> Is he even still alive? No. I'm trying to think of his name now, his real name. It's Theodore something or other. Yeah, but he's long gone now, yeah. Yeah, he must have died around... Oh, he died in 91. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So it's been mm. 30 years. Yeah. Well, one of the first horrific incidents in the story involves Talia harming a small animal. And it's commonly known that serial killers often harm animals. Not that I'm saying she's a serial killer. <laughs> Just uh, making a parallel. <laughs> Often harm animals before escalating their behavior. But in Talia's case, it's more complicated. Mm -hmm. She exhibited sociopathic tendencies even before acquiring the book. So is the book causing Talia's behavior or merely enabling it? And can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that's, you know, what? it's an interesting question. And... <laughs> So here's where I'm at. And it's interesting that you say that she was exhibiting sociopathic behaviors prior to the book, because I just kind of took her as a cruel kid. It's always interesting to get a reader's take on, on how they see something that I've already kind of got in my head. For me, because, I mean, I had an older brother who used to do cruel things to me occasionally. Um mm -hmm run me over with a go-kart once for all that the same kind of stuff she did to her sister <laughs> no i'd never had quite that level of, of thank god stuff. thank god yeah however i mean young kids can be cruel because i think part of it is their sense of right and wrong morally is still developing so yeah what she did it was bad it was absolutely bad and of course it got worse with the animal but for me the way i look at the book is it finds people 
who are broken in some way mentally. They are wanting something or they are needing something or they are angry about something, which Talia is, and they exploit that. And I kind of always took it more from the tack of almost like addiction. You know, like you get somebody who has a drug the first time and they get a reasonably pleasant high off it and they chase that high. And then, of course, they do more and more desperate things as they get deeper into the addiction. That was my take anyways on Talia is she was getting deeper and deeper into this relationship with the book. So, you know, it's one of those things where you put a toe over the line and that went okay. So then you put the whole foot over the line and okay, that's still okay. And then you start next thing, you know, you're like three miles from the line. And it's <laughs> one of those, how did we get here? Sort of thing. Flag then, on the play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting take though. Now you've got me thinking, is she sociopathic? Maybe she is. <laughs> Maybe it's just explaining that psychopathy. I'm honestly not sure. It's an interesting question. You're going to make me think about this all bloody night now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just her behavior right at the beginning. You can explain mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. the behavior of a cruel child, but there's mm -hmm. one thing she does where I'm just like, well, yes. that's a little, that's a little <laughs> more than just being a cruel child. <laughs> yes, know? it is. And I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and I was talking to NJ Gallegos, who is a writer, obviously, but also a physician. And she was talking about having young kids. And I guess that makes sense. I just heard you talk about the fact that a child's moral compass is in the process of developing at that mm -hmm. age. So that's why I don't know what the cutoff age is, but there's a certain age that they will not refer to somebody having antisocial personality disorder because they can't call a child right a sociopath until they reach a certain age and then they mm -hmm. can say antisocial personality disorder but until then it's like some weird it's a different disorder they give <laughs> i can't remember what it's called it's something defiant something defiant disorder yeah yeah, yeah it's just weird how even though they're exhibiting sociopathic tendencies they can't quite label it that until yeah. they reach a certain age which makes sense because your frontal lobe isn't fully developed until you're like no. 26 so <laughs> i don't know if mine's fully developed yet <laughs> so. i don't know if i have a frontal lobe <laughs> well there i is think my theory. head is up my ass still so. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting well and side note because i've and I've talked about this in some other interviews, but I have a really interesting family. And having done some reading, I can state with quite reasonable confidence that both my father and my brother, absolutely sociopaths. Absolutely. Really? Really. Yes. Have you ever told them this? Like, you guys are sociopaths? Mm, well, I never, I, I did tell my brother, but... Uh, <laughs> My father's been gone since 1983, so I did a lot of reading more in the 90s and the 2000s. So I didn't really come to that conclusion until he was long gone. But knowing what I know about him, absolutely. Mm. No question in my mind. <laughs> I come from a long line of addicts. Me too. <laughs> yeah, my, uh, well, I say a long line. I only know of it up until my grandfather, but my, uh, <laughs> my grandfather and my father, they... Whew, they got issues. So did I. They're <laughs> somewhat in arrest, but it's funny how it manifests in other ways, like it, just it can. caffeine and 
yeah workaholism and stuff like that writing mm, yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> writing about sociopaths yeah. <laughs> you're right yeah. there with me you know what's going <laughs> i do i do <laughs> so yeah well, circling back to the book, yep. for various reasons, including her father's disappearance and rumors surrounding her involvement in multiple strange occurrences, Talia is a social pariah at school. What's peculiar is her indifference to this status, which is unusual for a girl her age. Yes. And so if she's unconcerned with typical adolescent preoccupations, what then is her ultimate concern? You're asking really cool questions, by the way, I have to compliment you on that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, The way I see Talia at that stage is by the time the book has its hooks in her, she doesn't, really care too much about anything that doesn't directly impact her and the things that directly impact her ultimately are the irritating little sister the mom and ultimately the events towards the end of the book that i won't spoil everybody else all the other things it's incidental and again in this reading about sociopaths And along the way, you start reading about, or I started reading about the psychopathic killers, the serial murderers, that sort of thing. And one of the things that I found very interesting is that there are times when they can't really distinguish between things that are alive and things that are inert. So they would have as much feeling for a chair as they would for a person. And I think the way I started to build Talia toward the end there, she has a lot of disdain for most people in her life, but not a lot of feeling for them. And that's kind of where I was going with it is her empathy or her sympathy, whichever way really starts to diminish as the book's influence starts to increase. And there is a point, and I will just say, it comes around the time of Mr. Whiskers mm-hmm. that I think she even, if I remember my own book correctly, she kind of almost feels that loss just a little because it's like, you know, I used to love Mr. Whiskers. I used mm-hmm. to. I don't mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, I have no feeling left for that thing. So that's where I was kind of going with that. It really is a case of she's no longer a young child mentally physically Mm. absolutely you look at her you see a young kid mentally there's an entire other world going on in there yeah and let me preface this listeners at home i am not implying that talia is a serial killer this is not a book about a nine-year-old girl that goes around murdering people so i'm just drawing (laughs) parallels here so when i say like most serial killers i'm just drawing parallels but she keeps items that are analogous to trophies Trophies, and these trophies, so to speak, give her a sense of satisfaction. And so what benefit does she derive from these objects? I mean, is it just that sense of satisfaction or? Yeah. For me at the very beginning of this book, Talia 
has, or at least feels she has, no power. Her mom is paying more attention to the younger sister. So she's kind of out of the equation that way. It's fairly evident she doesn't have a lot of friends because there's none really mentioned in the story. So she's out and kind of on her own island and relatively powerless. When she gets a taste of power, that trophy (laughs) (laughs) is her reminder of it. And the first trophy occurred before she had the book. Mm. The book amplified that. And I will say without revealing anything that those trophies come into play in book six. Okay. And that's all I will say about that, but they do (laughs) in a cool way, I think. Yeah. So it is kind of like a uh, serial killer who takes a trophy. It allows them to kind of relive the experience. Yeah. Relive the experience and, and feel that sense of power again as well. Okay. So it's also about power as well. Yeah. Well, of course it is. That's what the the book is teaching her to harness uh, powerful forces. Yeah, of course it's about power. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, her mother, her poor, poor, unfortunate mother, Diane. Yes. Becomes the scapegoat for a couple of Talia's indiscretions, resulting in Diane getting into trouble with the law. And this leads Talia to realize that she may have gone a bit too far. Mm-hmm. However, her concern is not out of remorse for her mother, but rather because it disrupts her own living situation. So does Talia have an end goal or is she merely reveling in the suffering of others? And can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Interesting question. At the beginning, I believe she did. You know, she wasn't happy with her sister and she blamed her sister for a lot of it. Things were good until Lex came along, right? Mm-hmm. And then because she equates Lex coming into the picture, dad leaving. So those two things are tied together in her head. So for that reason, she blames her younger sister for that. So I think initially her goal is punish the sister. A more nebulous goal may be if I punish a sister or I can maybe show mom that Lex isn't the great kid that she thinks she is or whatever, maybe dad comes home. Kid logic, right? But again, that starts to morph when the book, and I keep saying the book gets its hooks in her, but it really, I mean, I don't know how else to describe it as either an addiction or a relationship. I guess it's probably more of a, a an addictive relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. Because the book is giving her what she needs and she is kind of feeding into the book. You don't get a lot of sense of what the book is about. You don't really find out a lot about that until farther on in the series, but there is this symbiosis going on. So I think there's a point where Talia does become somewhat drunk with power and then she loses sight of her goal. Now it's basically, if you come at me in any way, or if you hurt me in any way, 
or you try and take my power in any way, which occurs more towards the end, I'm going to lash out because now I have the power to do so. To draw a parallel, because I do... In my book signings and things like that, when somebody's like, what's this book about? My short form answer is carry at half the age and twice the rage. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's my elevator pitch, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I think, you know, again, you go back to Carrie and what was Carrie's end goal? Carrie's end goal was, I don't think, to (laughs) wipe out an entire school full of kids and then ultimately set half the town on fire. She was going to try and, you know, be human for a period of time and enjoy herself and things went bad Mm. talia i think ultimately really would just like things to go back the way they were originally before younger sister showed up and dad left Mm. but there's a point where that's just flat out impossible i mean god's honest truth as i was kind of coming up towards the last say third of the book when i was writing it the, the lyric that kept going through my head was Mick Jagger singing, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, <laughs> you need. And it just, honest to God, it just kept looping in my head. And uh, I think it fits, you know? <laughs> yeah, She definitely. can't get what she wants. And I don't even know if she gets what she needs, but she gets something. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely takes it by force. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the ending of the story is really disturbing in more ways than one, but is somewhat satisfying because a particular character gets their comeuppance. Uh And I've asked this question before to other authors that have similar endings to their books. And I was curious to know what you thought. Do you think the sense of satisfaction people get from the ending indicates everyone's inherent propensity for violence that only comes out when we can mask it with a sense of justice? Are we all Dexter? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's so much unpunished injustice in the world that, yeah, I think there's times where fiction can scratch that itch. You know, so I do think that's a fairly accurate assessment. I had one reader who, on finishing that story, said, I really liked it. But that one person at the end didn't suffer enough. (laughs) Should have made it worse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think... It probably was pretty bad. You just don't know what happened Mm -hmm. when, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but it's like. And I did that on purpose because I think there are times when what you or I think happened, like as you're reading it, you may think, oh, okay, well, X, Y, and Z must have happened here. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. I kind of like the idea of leaving some space at times for a reader to fill that in on their own too, because Mm -hmm. I mean, then they can make it as nasty as they want to make it. And I don't have to like necessarily either disappoint them or go too far. You know, (laughs) I like that. No, because you know what? I like the interplay in a story. To me, if you lay every single thing out in a story, there's not a lot of work for the reader to do. I like to have a bit more of a relationship with the reader and they're filling in some of the details and I'm, filling in some of the details. I like that. I like that when I read a book. So that was a case where I consciously did something the same way. 
Yeah. Somewhat interactive experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in the author's note that Talia returns to the series at one point. Yes. yes. Can you, I don't know if you can do this or not, but can you tell us which book and at what point in her life? I will say it is book five. Okay. And I will say that book five takes place in 2011, <laughs> which puts her a fair amount older. Okay. And I'm going to leave it there because the rest of it's probably better just to experience as it goes. <laughs> it gotcha. really is. Yeah. She definitely comes back. And I had so much fun with that when I brought it <laughs> up too. Is it kind of like a flat? Well, I think I'm getting into spoiler territory there. What were you going to say? <laughs> uh, well, here's the thing. So I don't know if I mentioned this in the first couple of books or not, but by the time you get to the very last book, I've referred to that one <clears throat> as my Avengers Endgame novel, because you have at least one character, at least one, sometimes more than one, from each one of the previous five books. They all come back in the sixth. So mm. Talia is one of those ones that does come back. And ultimately, again, without spoiling anything, I will say those that have read those last couple of books, their reaction to Talia at that point is quite satisfying. I went out to try something and I think I accomplished it because I'm getting the right feedback from it, which makes me happy. So nice. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Right. Yeah. Well, as you said, there's a total of six books. Mm -hmm. And if I read correctly, some are novels and some are novellas. Yes. So what determined the length of the series and the varying lengths of the books? No idea. <laughs> That's my honest answer. No idea. Yeah. Here's my weird chronology of events, which will show you exactly how weirdly unplanned it is. The first one I wrote was out for blood, which is actually book two. Then I wrote bad blood, which is the first one. Then I wrote blood loss, which is the third one. Then I wrote blood relations, which is the fifth one. Then I wrote Blood Pack, which was the fourth one. And then I wrote mm. the final book. So I literally went two, one, three, five, four, six. That's how I wrote them myself chronologically. Book two, Out for Blood, the first one I wrote, was written as a standalone. That was it. It was a one and done novel, completely finished. And I do tell a bit of the story in, in the beginning of Bad Blood, but economic things, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, the publisher said, you know, do you mind writing a shorter story kind of as a lead in? That's how Bad Blood came out. And then I started work on this werewolf novel <laughs> <laughs> called Blood Loss and didn't really have a satisfying ending. And then I realized I could tie it to the second book a bit. And then I had a good ending. The fifth book, which was the next one I wrote, Stirred Life is a mystery novel. I had actually kind of gone into a funk and I had a friend go, well, try writing in a different genre. Okay. I don't write in different genres, but <laughs> sure. So let's try a mystery novel. So I wrote a mystery novel. That was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. But the first <laughs> third of it, I could take and I turned into this horror novel and I realized, hey, I could bring back some characters, that sort of thing. 
And then the fourth one was a shorter story of an event that actually happened in 1912, 1911 or 1912, up on Lake Kamenisk Egg between Barry's Bay, Ontario and Cumbermere, Ontario. Mm. This paddle boat took one last ill-fated trip down the lake and November hit a snowstorm, sunk. And the only survivors were the people who floated to shore on a coffin. True story. I mean, I had had to take that. And then, so those are the disparate elements. Somehow I could see them all working around the same town of New Hope for the most part. But it wasn't until I hit that third book and realized I could tie it to the second one that I was like, hmm, I might have a series here. And then I knew I wanted to wrap everything up with all the characters at the end. But did I know it was going to be six books? No, I just kind of wrote the stories that I had and finished it off. For the lengths of the stories, I just wrote until the story finished. So I did not plan novella, two novels, novella, two novels. That was not planned. (laughs) The only thing that was truly conscious and the point where I wanted to make sure everything worked is when I wrote that final novel, as I was writing it and bringing the characters back, I was giving myself notes and saying, okay, you know, you got to put this in book one, or you got to put this scene in book four, and you got to put this here, and you got to put this there. So by the time they were all done. All six of them were done. It was a really nice flowing, cohesive whole with no contradictions along the way. Cause I had some contradictions <laughs> that I had to wire out. <laughs> but yeah, you know, when it's finished and I throw it out there, it looks like it was all planned. And this is exactly how I worked it out and everything else. Cause I've had people go, yeah, it's kind of neat. They have the short little story and then two longer ones and the short one and two longer ones. It's like, yeah, I planned that. Yeah. I no, I didn't. <laughs> it was very organic. Very organic. And God's honest truth, I don't know how I worked it out. <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I kind of pantsed my way through that. <laughs> well, that's a, a hell of a pants through <sighs> six books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really was. Yeah. Well, the books are subtitled Book of the, and I think I'm pronouncing it right. Is it aphotic or yeah. aphotic? Aphotic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Aphotic. Okay. Well, so I looked it up and I don't know if there's more than one meaning, but the meaning or definition that I found was it referring to the deepest part of the ocean so deep that sunlight cannot penetrate, which is kind of a crazy concept to think about. Seriously. Meaning that plant life can't grow due to the inability to even facilitate photosynthesis from sunlight. Exactly right. Yes. So... In what context are you using it in your stories? Because none of this takes place in the ocean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I figured um, it was something metaphorical and literary. I was looking for, like the whole series is dark. So I was looking for some sort of synonym to dark. I came across a photic and I got the exact same definition as you about the ocean thing. I did find somewhere else the term had kind of morphed into just almost more of a generalized term for dark that nobody ever uses because nobody knows what aphotic means (laughs) until they look it up. But (laughs) the interesting thing is there is some Lovecraftian type 
cosmic horror that starts to creep in to the series, starting with the next book and really digging in as you go through. And I had this connection when I read the whole deepest part of the ocean where the light doesn't reach. And then I remembered the Lovecraft quote about Cthulhu, you know, in his house in Relia, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming, which is supposedly somewhere in the ocean (laughs) sort of thing. And I was like, okay, I kind of like that. So (laughs) I basically said, yep, I'm going with aphotic. I like the term. It's mysterious enough that people don't necessarily know exactly what it means, causes questions. I like anything that will cause a question. So I went with that. That's how it kind of came around. I like weird words. In the last book, I mentioned the word zixt, which is Z, or if you're American, Z, (laughs) Y, X, T. (laughs) It's actually an obsolete term, and it is the second person singular past tense for to see. So you zixed him yesterday, man. You saw him yesterday. It's just these weird words like that or absquatulate to leave quickly. I just love, there's certain words that just kind of stick in my head and I love them. And aphotic was one of them. So <laughs> I went with it. <laughs> yeah. The word itself kind of has charisma, aphotic, mm. like it's, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. got some balls, you know, <laughs> uh, kind of. Okay. I've never heard it described that way, but I'll take it. <laughs> kind of slaps you on the face a little bit and says, look at me. <laughs> With his balls. <Yeah. laughs> well, if I can circle back a little bit to mm-hmm. the storyline of the book, one thing mm-hmm. I meant to ask you about was the babysitter, Marcia. Yeah, She seemed to be the only person that Talia liked, which made sense because she seemed to be the only one that didn't treat her badly at any point in the story. Nope. What was the intended role of her character in the story arc? Honestly, she was the book delivery system in that one. And that was it. And she plays a role in the next book as well. I won't say what, but she does. As for what happens at the end of Bad Blood, the first one, with Marcia, I'm going to let the reader decide if it's the influence that the book had on Talia. Was it the fact Marcia actually physically held the book at one point? Does the book have plans for Marcia later on? That sort of thing. Or she's just a good person. And you know what? Again, reader decide. You can have your fun with that one. So... Yeah, because as it stands, it's kind of weird that such a sinister thing came from such a sweet all around just yeah, like just there's (laughs) I can find no fault in Marcia. (laughs) No, no, yeah. And again, I really like her character in the second book too. So it was just kind of a way to introduce her as well. So yeah. yeah. Well, the more that Talia read the book, the more her mother, teachers, and other students would state that she sounded different, I think is Mm -hmm. the way it was put, Mm -hmm. which earned her the title at school, Spooky Talia. Other than just saying she sounded different, can you, I don't know, expand a little bit on like what exactly that means? Like, I mean, was it what she was saying, the cadence with which she was speaking or? So the way... In my head, what it is, is she's talking like an adult, Mm -hmm. you know, like she is a young kid who comes across as far too intelligent. In fact, I think I even mentioned at some point that her grades improved too, that she's far too adult for her years. 
And I guess the way to describe her is she's a child, but she has could be a far too worldly demeanor <laughs> compared to her peers, <laughs> or it could be an out of world demeanor compared to her peers as well. Again, you know, it's like dogs and little kids, they will get a vibe off an adult, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I love that guy. Meanwhile, the kid's like, I ain't going near him, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> and that's sort of how I saw people reacting to her. She's just that weird little kid that you don't exactly know what's going on behind the eyes and you don't want to know. So spooky, <laughs> spooky Talia. Well, there is a fortunate incident that happens in the story that turns out to be unfortunate. And the next door neighbors, the Kovacs, want nothing to do with Talia for obvious reasons. So mm -hmm. the authorities eventually get a hold of Talia's father, which is pretty much what Talia wanted from the beginning was to have, mm -hmm. you know, dad back in the picture. However, we find that Talia's father is a bit dangerous, but not anywhere near as dangerous as Talia. And the final scene of the book is very dark. What are yeah. some similarities between Talia's situation and the person to whom the book tells Talia she has to pass the book on to? As I mentioned a little bit earlier, Talia and in the next book, it is Stinky Pete or Pete. They're both angry. Uh, they're both very much broken. They are, they both want to lash out. They both have a desire to lash out. Talia's is more anger or maybe getting even with her sister. Pete is very much more, I need to eliminate a problem completely. Mm -hmm. And, and he's desperate to do that. The other thing is, unfortunately, they both trust the book a little bit more than they should. Uh, <laughs> I will say it goes less well for Pete than it does for Telly. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> gotcha. And for all the people around him, too. Yeah. <laughs> too much testosterone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Pete has enough testosterone, to be honest. Oh, oh okay. Well, I got to check that one out then, see yeah. what's going on. All right. <laughs> well, you state in the author's note that part of the inspiration for Talia's name is that it sits right in the middle of the word retaliation. It does. Were there any other instances like this with any of the other characters' names in the book? No, I think that was just something I happened to land across. There's the main protagonist in the next book his name is theo the only way only reason his name is theo is because for whatever reason i happen to be listening to a lot of thelonious monk at the time <laughs> <laughs> oh so, man i haven't heard that name in a while <laughs> yeah i just i'd gotten this box set and i was listening to a lot of thelonious you know, there was a point where I almost wanted to give him the nickname Felonius from the Steely Dan song, Felonius, my old friend. <laughs> Other than that, no, honestly, the names, I have fun with names. <laughs> I will have characters' names change two and three times <laughs> through the writing of a book. And I have these little notes myself. So, you know, Ted has become John and then, you know, 50 pages on John is now Sam. You know, that sort yeah. of thing. And then I have to go back and change them all. But you know, there is the odd one that's like, yeah, that's a person I really like, or that's a person I really don't like. There is a character in the second book called 
the toad. <laughs> and he is literally a very fictionalized version of my oldest friend who I went to high school with, who we called Frog. I mean, mm. he was even his mom called him Frog for the longest time. <laughs> uh, he made this weird noise in the back of his throat and he sounded like a frog. <laughs> but seriously, when it comes to me naming characters, most of the time it's like, okay, I have a new character. Let's look around the library and start looking at author names. And oh, okay, the, oh, there was a character in that one. I really like the name of that. Which also why they change because it's like, all right, I liked it now, but then halfway down the line, it's like, nah, it doesn't fit right. I need a different name for that. There is the odd time where a name just hits. Talia was one of those ones. It was like, yeah, it is right in the middle of retaliation. I love that. I'm going with it. But for the most part, yeah, it's a little bit more mundane than that, to be honest. <laughs> so, gotcha. Yeah. Well, there is some severe violence involving children in your book. And I was curious to yeah. know how does, oh no, I'm saying that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you haven't read the rest of the books yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, the darker and more soul crushing, the better. Yeah. I just like, I don't know, maybe it's like a desensitization thing, but you know, it's like, I like those scenes and those storylines that really just wrench your guts. Yeah. I feel like it takes talent to be able to do that with the written word, you know, like to literally make you feel physically ill, basically. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. Well, how does writing that content affect you, especially considering you have is it children or do you have a child? Well, my children, <laughs> I have a son and a daughter. My son is 27. My daughter is 30. They're not children anymore. Oh, okay. So they're grown ass adults now. <laughs> <laughs> However, I drew a lot on, especially in the first book, my daughter's when she was a young kid, there was actually a scene that I mentioned in there about the dad reading her the wizard of oz before she went to bed i did that with my daughter <laughs> so and it was interesting because my daughter read an early draft of the book and came went oh and got to that part and went oh this book is about me and i'm like oh no honey no 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 <laughs> it's not it's so not <laughs> uh, and then she came back later and agreed with me it's definitely it's not. like oh thank um, god yeah it's not yeah seriously <laughs> but no overall and in this one, yeah, it is despicable acts against, you know, they, small kids. There is through the books, all of the books, and this serves as like a trigger warning for anybody thinking about reading the books, but <laughs> there is werewolves in these stories. There is vampires in these stories. There are demons in these stories. The worst most despicable acts that you'll read through the six books are pretty much perpetrated by humans. We're the worst monsters of the bunch. We really are. Mm. So writing them is awful. It is utterly awful. There is a scene that I wrote in the last book and I didn't expect it. And this is going to sound really stupid because I'm the one writing it, but it's very true. <laughs> I did not expect it to go as dark as it went. And by the end of it, like I was tearing up. And I'm the one literally at the keyboard typing it away. <laughs> but they're absolutely terrible. Here's the thing. When I read Carrie, when it first came out, so I believe I was 12 or 13, somewhere around there. That was the book 
that's told me you could write this stuff because I was a bully kid and this was my story. You know, it was a cool story with a ending that, you know, hey, I get everybody back. But it wasn't until I read Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. I don't know if you've read that or not, but mm. <laughs> if you want to almost feel sick, that's the book to read. Jack Ketchum <laughs> does not write supernatural horror for the most part. He had the odd one, but his books are real people doing really, really bad things. And <laughs> that was the book that taught me to be a lot more visceral and a lot more real. Mm. And I took all that learning and put it into these books. But it's, and it is literally the reason why my tagline on all of my social media is I write ugly stories about horrible people doing terrible things. Uh, yes. <laughs> say it again. Say it again. <laughs> I write ugly stories about horrible people doing terrible things. When I do write that stuff, it does. It affects me deeply. It, and there's parts of me, it bothers me at times that it's like, oh, God, but. Having said that, for me, it's still horror. Mm. It's more realistic horror, but it is horror. And it's horror that happens, unfortunately, far too often. I mean, to <laughs> I did a reading at one point a few years back, and I was reading from Bad Blood. And there was a scene towards the end um, at the Kovacs' house when she sort of initiated her final acts. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, <clears throat> or hijinks. <laughs> yes. And so I read a bit from that and I actually had a friend who had been in the audience come up afterwards and tell me that two women literally got up and ran from the room, one with her hand over her mouth, the other one just looking apparently disgusted. Golf clap. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. Uh, <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, it's a horror novel. So I'm out to horrify you yeah, and I'll do what I have to do to horrify you. Hell yeah. Yeah. So there's worse things coming. <laughs> <laughs> and we will definitely talk about that. Um, I was curious though, uh, basically enveloping this entire world of yours. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the town of new hope. Mm -hmm. Is this okay. real fictional? Yes. It's real. So it's not called new hope from, 1977 to 1981, my very formative years, I was like 15 to 19. My parents had moved us up to a town called Berries Bay, Ontario, which is about an hour east of Algonquin Park and about two hours west, sort of southwest of Ottawa. It is a teeny tiny town, 1,200 people. It's not Berry. It is Barry's Bay. <laughs> Everybody has heard of Barry. They have not heard of Barry's Bay. Anyways, so I lived there through my teen years. I finished high school up there. I kind of grew out of an insecure, very shy kid to a slightly more confident semi-adult by the time I left. And I... Did you have a book? <laughs> did I have... No, no, I did not. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I did. <laughs> And I've got friends there that I still have to this day. I learned to drive there, for God's sakes. So New Hope is very much Barry's Bay, with one exception. There was no bookstore in Barry's Bay. Uh, <laughs> not at all. So I had to shoehorn a bookstore in, and I basically put it where a Felsky's shoe store is or was in the town. I don't know if it's still there. I haven't been back in a bit. 
But everything else is reasonably accurate there. I mean, the house that Talia lived in, I know exactly which house it is. The high school where the second book takes place is Madawaska Valley District High School, where I went to school. As I said, the boat that goes down in the fourth book, that actually happened. The house in the fifth book that Lex comes back to, not Lex from the first one, this is a different Lex, Mm. is my house, the house I lived in. So it's there. It's all fictionalized. But it's there. It's, I mean, I could take you on a guided tour. (laughs) And to add even more interest, possibly, the very next town over to Barry's Bay is an even smaller place called Wilno. It is literally a blink and you'll miss it town on the highway. Somewhere in, and I'd have to look it up now, but I believe it was the late 40s, early 50s, Someone came along and did a report on that town and ultimately labeled it the, and I'm not making this up, they labeled it the vampire capital of Canada. Oh, kind of like the Lost Boys. (laughs) One thing I can never stand about New Hope, all the damn vampires. (laughs) Damn vampires. So, Volno is also the first Polish settlement in Canada, so it's a lot of Polish people. So... When it came time to introduce my vampires to the series, they come from the fictionalized version of Wilno, and they are the Polish version of vampires, which are really cool. They're actually really cool vampires. So, <laughs> so yeah, I stole a lot from basically my latter teen years. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I usually do not have somebody come on the show unless... Like, as soon as I crack the book open, the first scene just jumps out at me and grabs me by the neck. Mm -hmm. The beginning scene of the book creates this slow, creeping, off-putting feeling in the reader. I feel like that's not a good enough description. It's like it starts (laughs) off as just kind of a very typical domestic... Yeah, like you said, it's a domestic scene, yeah. Yeah, just a domestic scene, but then there's just like slowly... These weird off-putting things start happening until, you know, I'm not going to give away what happens, but it's like, holy shit, what did she just do? And then scene, curtain. (laughs) So drop the mic. Yeah, yeah. Drop the mic. How do you use language and description to evoke a sense of dread like that? Hmm. And that's another question that really makes me think when I write, um, and this is very standard for me, my first draft could probably be more of a script. I tend to do a lot of dialogue in the first draft with minimal description here and there, unless the scene is absolutely a hundred percent crystal clear in that first go through I kind of sketch it in, but the dialogue tends to be the first thing that comes to me. After that, it's when I come back around, that's when I start to fill things in because now I know what everybody's saying. So now I can start to fill in what's going on while they're talking. And my big thing, and I used to teach creative writing as well. So the thing that I used to, and I used to have fun with it is when I, was talking to a classroom full of writers and I'd say, okay, so you're thinking about writing a scene in a boardroom. 
everybody knows what a boardroom looks like. You know, it's a big table of some sort and whatever, a bunch of chairs around it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what do you describe? And everybody wanted to over-describe a room that everybody has a mental picture of. So then I used to do this thing where I'd say, okay, look up at the ceiling and tell me what color the floor is without looking down. And nobody could tell me. And then I say, okay, look up at the front of the room. Like, look at me. What color is the back wall? Nobody could tell me. Look over there. How many windows are on the other wall? Nobody could tell me. <laughs> and then the one I used to love the most, because at this point I'd been teaching the class for probably like two hours into that particular class, turn around and face that back wall that you didn't know the color of. What am I wearing? <laughs> no, nobody could tell me. nobody we are the worst witnesses in the world we really oh, God, yes. i don't know i don't know how crimes are solved so for DNA. me <laughs> yeah right so for me the way i attack it is what draws you emotionally what do you notice because it's hitting you from the emotional level if you walk into a room and it's freezing and you know that kind of grabs you or there's an extreme of some point so an extreme feeling an extreme emotion that sort of thing and i really do try and get inside character heads like in that initial domestic scene i was fully inside atelier's head i knew what she was thinking i knew the emotions are going through her and after that, it's basically a case of just getting the damn points down, <laughs> you know, like just <laughs> describing it as best I can without over describing it. Just enough to paint in the details and keep the story going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to describe. God's honest truth, it's not a conscious thing that I do. My standard barometer is, what do I want to read? Mm -hmm. I can't stand pages and pages and pages and pages of description. I can't stand pages of straight dialogue. Uh, you need that mix. You need that interest. You need short, choppy sentences. You need longer ones and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's probably not a really good answer for your question, but honestly, it's just a case of getting down what I see as quickly as I can sticking to the senses and the emotions and kind of running with it from there. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't know if that helps or not. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you know, sometimes the questions I ask, I'm a very detail oriented person and to so a I. fault. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to so a I, fault. <laughs> well, but like some of the questions that I ask, you can't really get detailed when you're dealing with art. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. you ask an author this Break this down for me yeah. in a bullet yeah. point. Pre well, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can do that with fixing an air conditioner, an AC yeah. unit, but yeah, uh, you're talking about my book right now. I, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Well, and the other side of that, too, is, you know, writing a book. And I think this can be said for any art. It tends to be more of an iterative process, too. It's like I don't just write it and I'm done. You know, I write it and then I'll come back over it and then I'll come back over it. And by the end of it, it's a ship of Theseus, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> was there anything in there from original or is it all new now or is it all changed? So it's hard to say because each pass through, you may be coming at it from a different point of view, a different thought process, a different goal in mind for that scene. So it goes through all of those filters before it finally rings out the far end. and then. You know, hopefully at the <laughs> at the end of it, you haven't buggered it up by going over too many times, you know, and it, it reads well. So, yeah, yeah, it's tough, though. 
Well, when I was asking you about the scenes that involved violence towards children, and you were yeah. telling me about that one scene that you were writing, I mm-hmm. think you said it brought you to tears. Am yes. I? Yep. Yeah. yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So. How do you maintain a balance between immersing yourself in the darkness of your stories and maintaining your own mental well-being? <laughs> well, that's assuming I have a mental well-being to start with. However, <laughs> well, to the point where you don't want to jump off a bridge. Yeah, true, true, true. <laughs> no, you know what? It's interesting because for me, it's the reason I write horror in the first place. As you know, we talked about our parents and our grandparents and some of the issues that they had things like that. And for me, the reason I write horror is because I want to explore that. And I think a lot of that in my own little pop psychology self-assessment is that I'm trying to understand why some of the people who did terrible things to me in the past, you know, what was going through their head or can I understand them any better, you know, that sort of thing. So that's you know, I, I kind of dive into that darkness, but I also know very much like, you know, a roller coaster or whatever, it's going to be a rough, nasty ride and it's going to maybe scare the shit out of me at times or upset me at times, but there is an end to it. And mm-hmm. I kind of come out that other side and I've kind of managed to dump some crap along the way. <laughs> a normal, healthy human being doesn't necessarily choose to permanently dwell in darkness and pain. And I don't either. You know, we want to escape that. Sometimes circumstances don't allow it. You can't escape it. You're with somebody that you can't get away from or, you know, whatever it may be. And I will also say that there was a period five years ago where I was wandering in that darkness for about a year and a half before I finally was able to get out of it. And that's when I actually came to write the last couple of books. And I do talk a little bit more about kind of that mental well-being and finding your way through the darkness. So, yeah, I explore the aphotic, <laughs> the aphotic <laughs> mindset. Mm-hmm. And I do kind of come at it with a bunch of different characters and how each one reacts to it. Some react fairly well, some react not so well. And the interesting thing is I do... I have gotten feedback again from people who it's resonated with them. I guess is the right way to say it. One character or another has really resonated with them. So how do I balance it? For me, it's just writing through it and kind of coming out the other side. And yeah, there's times where it hurts like hell, but on the other hand, it's then down and it's dealt with. It's there. And now it's up to other people to deal with it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) For better or worse. Yeah. At the very least, cathartic. Exactly. There's the word that I couldn't find. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) right. Well, tell me about any collaborative processes. Do you work with editors, beta readers? I don't work with any beta readers. I do not. I keep this stuff very close to the vest until I judge it done. Now, having said that, yes, I do have an editor who went through all six books Jennifer Dinsmore, she's amazing. Shout out to Jennifer. Um, Shout out to Jennifer. And she absolutely polished the writing. Honestly, if there's writing in there that shines, that's Jennifer's 
influence. If it still stinks, it's probably because I was too stubborn to change that part where she told me to change it. Uh, <laughs> but um, on the other side, though, now we haven't published anything as yet, but I do actually have another friend who I write with collaboratively. And that's fun because we're both kind of splitting off and kind of going outside of our own genres to a degree. He is very much the Edgar Allan Poe, Mary Shelley, Gothic. He loves that sort of thing. And I love reading it. I've never written it. <laughs> My dog is scratching away on the mat here. Okay. We're okay. almost done, Murphy. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so he's very much in the Edgar Allan Poe, Mary Shelley camp, and I tend to be much more contemporary. But we get together, and I never thought it would work. But my God, the stuff that we write is amazing. I absolutely love it. And I didn't think I would because I didn't think I could ever collaborate with anybody. But the good thing is we both for this collaboration, we both keep our minds very much open and he'll come up with something I'll kind of go, oh, that's not going to work, but eh, let's give it a shot. And in the end, it's like, oh no, you know what? That's working really well. And I can build on that. So it does work. We have fun with it. And the biggest thing is very much keeping the open mind and having that respect for the other person's talents as well. So yeah, same with editing too. I have to respect Jennifer's talents when she's editing me too. It's what I pay her for. She's good at it. So let's listen to her. <laughs> uh, I can just envision myself working with an editor, paying an editor, but then disagreeing with everything. That's <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, seriously, right? <laughs> uh, well, what is the life of Tobin Elliott like outside of writing? Oh, God. Uh, pretty damn boring, actually. Yeah? Yeah. Like, I mean, basically, I'm retired, officially retired from full-time work. I do work part-time in a bookstore, which is fun in one way because I get to work amongst books. It's absolutely brutal on my wallet and my to-be-read pile. I'm just looking at the probably 150 books I've got sitting here that I have to read. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and really, other than that, I mean... I write, I read a ton. I think I just did my review for my 234th book of the year. I walked my dog Murphy, who's half German Shepherd and half Doberman. And half badass. Sometimes, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> He's loud. And sometimes his two brain cells actually come together and he has thoughts. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, hanging out with my kids and their significant others and things like that. And Hopefully 2024, we'll do a little bit of traveling as well. But yeah, it's really just writing, reading, hanging out with family, hanging out with dog. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing crazy. <laughs> I can't tell you about the serial murders that I do at night or, you know, when I go oh, dress no, Batman. No. But no, I can't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, Tobin, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. You as well. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Well, first off, I do have to say thank you so much for the questions. You've got brain cells firing that I haven't had firing in a while and made me think about some of the choices <laughs> I made. And it was, no, seriously, I, I actually really appreciate it. It was good. Yeah. For me to plug, I am in a brand new anthology that came out um, about two weeks ago called Doors of Darkness, and I've got a short story in there. But other than that, really, if you want to know anything about me, 
The easiest thing is Linktree and my full name, Tobin Elliott, all one word, two L's, two T's in Elliott. It's got links to all my books. It's got links to all my social media and it's got links to interviews and things like that. So that's probably the best way to find out more about me if you really are that bored with your life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, listeners at home, you will not have to worry because all links will be in the description. And Tobin, thank you again for joining me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's been fun. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer of short stories and an epic dystopian saga. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.